The Eddie B. Sit edition, an audio series of the Talmud Bavli. Masikat Shekalim has been dedicated by Dr. Isaac Meddeb and his wife Lily in memory of Moshe ben Nachel Man. We hope that the learning of the 22 Dapim of Masikat Shekalim will be a a ilui neshama for the niftar Moshe ben Rachel. Tehi nishmatot zerura b'tzol ha'chayim. Amen. Daf Yud Zayin. Today's daf has been dedicated by Tuvi Asis, one of the charter members of our daf Hayomi class. May God bless him with continued success. Aslaha varvaha bechol maaseh yadav. Amen. Today's daf is being studied. Le'ilui nishmat hakam baruch Rafael ben Miriam. And Abraham ben Esther. Ruwa Hashem Tanihem began Eden. Amen. We begin today's daf on Tetzayin Amud Bet, and we begin three lines from the bottom, Halacha Bet, at the Mishnah. And the Mishnah says, Hechan Hayu Ishtahabayot Ha'elu. We learned in the previous Mishnah that when a person would enter the Beit HaMikdash, he would have to bow in 13 different places. So the Gemara wants to know, where are these 13 places? So the Gemara says, Arba, Arba Besafon. There were four places in the uh, north of the courtyard. The Arba Bedarom, and four in the south. Shalosh Bemizrah. Three in the east, Ushtayim b'Ma'arav, Keneged Shelosha Asar She'arim, which actually they were corresponding the thirteen gates that were in the Beit Hamikdash. Now, just to get a better picture of it in your art scrolls in seventeen eight two, you actually see a a, um, a picture uh, of the Beit Hamikdash, what it looked like. So you have over here marked for you the thirteen different gates that were on the different sides of the uh, courtyard. So now the Mishnah is going to list us each one. So as we list them, you can refer back to this picture over here in order to get a better picture of where they were. So the Mishnah says, every time that they would walk into one of these gates, they would actually bow first. So they weren't bowing 13 times in a row. So whatever... But every time they walked into one of these 13 gates, they would actually uh, prostrate themselves before walking in. So comes the Mishnah and says, So now we start with the southern gates, beginning with the ones that were closest to the west. Okay, the Beit HaMikdash again goes east-west, really up a ramp. So now we're going to the southern wall, the westerlymost gate. And the Mishnah calls that gate Sha'ar Ha'ilyon, the upper gate. Well, it's obvious why they call it the upper gate, because if we look at our chart here, number one is the uh, gate that is the most highest. It seems that they don't, uh, they don't judge the 12th and 13th gate as the highest gates, even though technically they were higher than the first gate, seemingly. They judge the first gate as the highest gate that was on the highest point on the mountain's uh, original elevation. That's why they called it, incidentally, Sha'ar Ha'ilyon. Sha'ar Ha'delik. The gate next to it was called Sha'ar Ha'delik, which literally means the kindling gate. Uh, We explained that that was uh, opened, a gate that led into the Lishkat Ha'etzim, which was the wood chamber. And they called it because it was that uh, gate that they carried the wood through that gate in order to put it on the uh, Mizbeah. So that's called Sha'ar HaDelik. The third gate was called Sha'ar HaBechorot. That's the gate of the firstborns. So the Mefashim explained because when a person was bringing a Bechor of an animal, uh, he would bring it through that gate and they would slaughter it. Uh, in that area in the south side of the Beit HaMikdash. That's gate number three. Gate number four was called Sha'ar HaMayim, water gate. Why was it called the water gate? Remember on Sukkot, they used to fulfill a mitzvah called Yisuch HaMayim. But they used to pour a jug of water on the Mizbeah. So they used to 
get the water, draw the water from Mayana uh, Shilawah, they called it, and then they would bring it through this fourth gate. So since the water of the Sukhamayim was brought through that gate, it was called Sha'ar uh, Amayim. Rabbi Eliezer bin Yaakov Omer, Bo Amayim Mefakim. That it was in that gate that the waters trickle. And when Mashiach comes, there's going to be water that is going to uh, gush forth from the threshold of the Beit HaMikdash, starting from Sha'ad Hamayim. And the Gemara will elaborate on that water that is going to eventually uh, come up from that gate. Le'umatam, opposite the southern gates, Basafon, you had the northern side, Simuchim b'ma'arav, again, the gate, the gate closest to the west was called Sha'ar Yechonya. Sha'ar Yechonya, the Gemara will explain why it was called that. If you remember, Yechonya was one of the kings, the last kings of Israel. Sha'ar HaKorban, okay, that was the uh, next gate next to it. Sha'ar HaNashim, the gate of the Nashim and Sha'ar Hashir and the gate of Song so now the Gibran explains them to us why was the gate called the gate of Yechonya when Yechonya was sent into exile in the times of Nebuchadnezzar so before he left he went back to the Beit HaMikdash in order to so to speak bid farewell to the Beit HaMikdash and get God's permission to leave into the exile and it was in that gate that he left into the exile so they called that gate Sha'ar uh, Yechonya now let's just go back what was uh, Sha'ar Korban? so uh, Kodshe Kodashim that would be like a Korban Khattat they were slaughtered in the northern side of the Beit HaMikdash so therefore they would enter through that gate called Shara Korban to go bring the uh, Korban. Uh, you had Sha'ar uh, Hanashim. That was a lady that would bring a Korban into the Beit Hamikdash. She would have to go through that gate to make Simicha on the animal. Certain animals require that the owner has to press their hands down on the animal's head. Uh, ladies as well, according to this opinion, were obligated in Simicha. So they would have to do it in the Kodesh. So they would actually go through that gate and press their hands on uh, the animal. Okay, so the Mephashim explained that this is going according to the opinion of Rabbi Yoseh that says women are not obligated to do Simicha, but there's some Chot Reshut. If they want to make Simicha, they can do it voluntarily, so that would be according to that opinion. Then you had Shad Ashir, the musical instruments that were used by the Leviim that uh, during the Qurban, so they were brought via that gate into the courtyard. Okay, comes the Mishnah and continues. Shebe Mizrah, on the eastern side of the Hechal, you had Sha'ar Nikanor, the gate of Nikanor, Ushne Pishpeshin Hayulo. And next to Sha'ar Nikanor, there were two minor doorways, Echad Mimino, Bechad Mesimolo. So therefore that would be considered 9, 10, and 11. Those were three gates themselves. Ushnayim b'ma'arav. And then you had two gates on the western side. They did not have any names. Uh, so therefore they were just number 12 and 13. Now, regarding uh, this Pishpeshim, the Taklin Hatin writes, She'arim ketanim betoch she'arim gedolim ve'gam hem meminyan yudgimot she'arim. Even though there was a gate called Shara Moked, that's where they uh, had the wood for the Beta uh, Megdash, and there was a little gate next to it, because that was very, very small. So therefore that was insignificant, they didn't count it as one of the gates. These Pishpeshim seem were seeming a little bigger, so therefore they did count as the... Um, as separate gates. Now, let's just go back for a second. One of the gates we said on the eastern side was called Sha'ni Kanor. Uh, that was actually the entrance to the uh, courtyard of the Beit HaMikdash. It had two small doors built into the larger doors of the gate. Uh, it was called the Nikanor Gate. 
because uh, he was the one that saved these gates, like the Gemara tells the Maaseh. Comes the Gemara and says, Matitin Abba Yusa ben Yohanani. Al Mishnah that says that there were 13 gates in the Beit HaMikdash. And that's where the 13 bowings were done, is following the opinion of Abba Yusa ben Yohanan. The Amar Keneged Yud Gimel Sha'arim. That says that the 13 bowings were corresponding to the 13 gates. Beram, however, Kerabbanan, according to the rabbis, in Masechet Midot, Shiva Sha'arim Ayu Ba'azara. That there were only seven gates, according to the rabbis, in the Azara. Al-Dat Rabbanan, according to the rabbis, Hechani Yushtahavayot Al-Alu. Then where were the 13 bowings, according to them, if there were only seven gates? Like we learned over there, Yud gave a piratzot ayubo. There were thirteen breaches in the wall. Shepertsum alchei Yavan. That the kings of the Yavan in the times of the miracle of Hanukkah they came and breached thirteen different holes into the wall in the Beit Hamikdash. The Hazru vegadrum bene Hashmonaim, and the Hashmonaim family came and reclosed those thirteen breaches. The Gadru kenegdan Yud gimal. Uh, so the rabbis made a decree at that time that every time you pass one of those breaches that was uh, later fixed, that you would have to bow in front of them. So the 13, according to the Hachamim, were not in the gates. The 13 were in the former breached walls that were done by the Yavanim. Ketiv, it says, now the Gemara is going to discuss the uh, what the Mishnah said, how uh, eventually the waters are going to come out of the gates of Sha'aramayim and from there they're going to travel throughout Yerushalayim. So the Gemara says, Ketiv, it says regarding what's going to happen at the end of time, it's a Pasuk in Zechariah. That it's going to come at the end of times that spring water will issue forth from Yerushalayim. Tane, mebet kodesh ha-kodashim so the water is going to start to trickle from the Kodesh Kodashim until the uh, Parochet, which is the curtain that separates between the Kodesh and the Kodesh Kodashim. It's going to be a stream of water that's going to be as wide as the antennae of Silai and Kilai. Those are actually types of snails. So their, uh, antenna, their antenna are actually very narrow. So the trickle is going to start the very narrow path Starting from the Kodesh Kodeshim to the Parochet. When a Parochet ad Mizbachazahav kekaneh hagabim, and then the water is going to start to widen, and from the Parochet until the Golden Mizbeach, they're going to be as wide as the antennae of locusts, which are a little thicker than that of snails. The Mizbachazahav ad Azarot. Now, from the Mizbachazahav until the courtyards, kechutchil sheti. That will be as wide as the thread of warp. That's the thread that they, uh, you know, the weave, uh, the weavers have. So that's going to be a little thicker. Now, and from the courtyard until the threshold of the Beit Hamikdash, it's going to be even thicker. That's going to be the thread of the roof. That's the other direction. So therefore, you see that the water starts very narrow. It's going to widen until that measurement. From that point on, it's going to widen until how much? As broad as water issuing from the mouth of a flask. Comes the Gemara and says, actually they learned this from a Pasuk in Yechazkel, because the Pasuk Mayim So Mefakim is Melashon Pach, that is going to be wide as a Pach. So the Gemara now discusses what's going to happen with this stream that's going to flow from the Kodesh Kodeshi. Ketiv, it says, It says that the water is going to trickle from the right side of the Beit HaMikdash. So it says, the man uh, is going to come the man who's left to the east, he's going to have a measuring stick in his hand, and he's going to measure 1,000 amot of water, and 1,000 amot of water are going to reach what's going to be called me'of sign, which literally means ankle waters, meaning, ad which is, it's going to reach uh, ankles, meaning from the Kodesh Kodashim, 1,000 amma of that 
stream is going to be very shallow waters that are only going to measure up to a the ankles. Okay, so it's going to be meh karsulayim. Bayamud elef. Now they're going to measure the next thousand amot. Bayamireni babayim mayim berkayim. They're going to be called knee waters. Ad berkaya. See, the stream is getting deeper. Now already they're going to measure the next thousand amot. It's going to reach the knees. Bayamud elef bayamireni memutnaim. The next thousand amot are going to be measured. They're going to reach the waist. Ad mutnaya. Vikan vailach. And from that time on. It's going to be a very strong and furious flow to the extent the Pasuk says, Which means it's not going to be even able to cross it. Even uh, big ships or boats will not be able to cross it because it's going to be so turbulent. Because the Pasuk says that... Uh, it's going to be a place, Yerushalayim is going to be a place of wide rivers and channels that a boat will not be able to travel in it. Vitsi Adir is a mighty vessel, lo yavrenu, will not be able to cross it. Mepenema, why? So the Pasuk ends, Kiga'u hamayim me sahu. They ended the Pasuk because the waters swelled, because Kiga'u, the waters are going to swell so high, me sahu. Now what does me sahu mean? Ma'u me'sahu What does this word mean, me'sahu? Me'lashut Which means the current is going to be so strong It's going to prevent one from swimming across Which means the Ga'on learns as if this is a combination of Two words that really are one word Mi'sahu From swimming Which means it's going to be so strong that you're not going to be able to swim across Or actually that's the way of Chaim Kanievsky, you'll forgive me, says that as if the Pasuk says, Misahu from swimming. Because of the swift current. Comes again and says, Amar of Hunna, Beatrin Karu le Shayata Sahvana. says, In our place they called swimming Sahvana, which is related to the word Sahu. He's just showing you another usage of the word Sahu, which means to swim. Uperas yadav bekirbo ka'asher yefares hasuheh lishot. Another pasuk tells us that Hashem, when he destroys Moab, it says God is going to stretch his hand out like a swimmer who stretches his hand out to swim. So therefore you see ka'asher yefares hasuheh lishot. So again you see the word, suheh means to swim. So we just bring another proof to the word mesahu is waters that are not going to be swimmable because they are going to be very fierce. Gebarah now says, Mahu lishot. We have a, another interpretation of what does this mean, lishot. Uh, the Gaon the Vilnius text is actually, Mahu mesahu. Should be giving a different interpretation of what mesahu means. Till now we learned it means from swimming. But now the Gemara gives a different interpretation. Amar bi Yosef, ber bi Boon, ma'in de mitmalelin be'alma, which means sahu comes from siha uh, to converse or to talk, which means the water is going to be so great that it's going to be spoken about in the entire world. Everybody's going to talk about it. Wow, look at this water over here. Look how uh, turbulent it is. So therefore, it's called me sahu, waters of conversation. That everybody's going to talk about the uh, level of these waters. Kemara says, Ketiba says the Pasuk, Bayo Mahu, Yehye Makor Niftah le Bet David, Ul Yoshve Yerushalayim le Hatat ul Nida. So on that day, the waters spring out into Yerushalayim. It's going to be for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for Hatat and for Nida, implying that you're going to be able to use the waters for two rituals. For Hatat, that's the performance of the Para'aduma, the waters. And for Nida, for a lady to immerse herself. So the Gebra says, Rabbi Shemuel ben Nachman b'shem Rabbi Yonatan. Nebet David, ma'ad Yoshvei Yerushalayim, spanning from the house of David, uh, all the way to the dwellers of Yerushalayim, kesherim l'nida ul-Hatat. Which means, it's going to be kasher for a lady who's Nida, to immerse herself in there. And it's also going to be kasher for khatat waters. The khatat waters are the waters that they mixed with the ashes of the para'aduma, 
Now the Torah says that it has to be Mayim Hayim. Mayim Hayim is from a natural spring water. And since these waters over here are coming from underground, so that's the deen of a Mayim Hayim, and therefore it will be legal for the Mehatat. For that matter, it's also permissible for a Nida to immerse herself in running spring water, which we call that Mayim Hayim. So therefore she will have no problem also to dip in that area. Mikan va'ilach me'ta'arovetim. But from that point on, after the dwellings um, of Jerusalem, the waters are called mingled waters. That's mingled waters means they're mingled with spring water and rain water. And therefore, Kesherim lenida ufsulim lemehatat. Well, a nida can dip in rain water as well. So therefore, it's still going to be kashir for her to dip. However, it's not going to be kashir for mehatat. Because mehatat can only be used by spring water. And therefore now it's going to be mixed with rainwater after that point, so therefore it's not going to be kasher. Amar Abil Azar, Abil Azar has a different interpretation. Mebet David ve'ad Yoshvei Yerushalayim, from the house of David until the inhabitants of Jerusalem, kesherim lenida ulhatat. Like we said, it'll be kasher for both the nida to immerse and to use for mehatat because it's considered maim hayim. Bikan ba'ilach. But from that point on, mekatafrisotin. It's going to be considered the water of slopes. Because at that point, the hills of Jerusalem are there. And therefore, the water is going to be sloping down. Pisulim nida ul hatat. They are disqualified for both the nida and for a hatat. Now, what's the reason for this? So the Mephashim uh, explained that... Uh, that even though, let's say from that point on, you're going to have it, which is rainwater. Normally rainwater is kishira for a nida, but the problem is that since you have the hills of Yerushalayim over there, the rainwater is moving. And the halakha says that rainwater is only kishira for a nida when it's ba'ashbodin. Ashbodin means when it's still. However, if it's moving, it's not kishira. Mimayan is kishira even if it's moving. So we're not worried about the uh, moving of the Memayan. But after that point already with his hills, so the water is not still, and there's rainwater in there. So therefore for Nida it's not Keshira. Certainly it's not going to be Keshira for Hatat, because it can only be coming from Memayan. Comes the Gemara and continues. So basically we have a Machloket. Uh, after the area of the dwelling of Yerushalayim, is it going to be Kasher for Nida or not? According to the first opinion, yes. According to the second opinion, no. Kebarah says, Ketiv, it says the Pasuk, Vayomer Elai, Hamayim ha'ele yotzim, Ela gelila ha'kadmona. Pasuk says, That these waters are going to go to the Eastern Galilee. Where is this Eastern Galilee? So the Kebarah says, Zeyam shel Samchu. Which means the waters are going to reach the Sea of Samchu. What is that sea? So he explains here that the Sea of Samchu was a body of water known in ancient times as the Sea of Samachonutis. And sometimes as the waters of Merom, but more recently as Lake Hule, which is a lake located some 16 kilometers north of the Sea of Tiberias. In any event, this uh, water is going to uh, drain out into the uh, Sea of Samchu. The verse continues, V'yaredu al haraba, And they're going to descend to the plain, Zeyam shel Tiberia. That's referring to the Sea of Tiberia, that would be the uh, Kineret. Uba'u hayamma, And they're going to come to the sea, Zeyam melah. That's referring to the Dead Sea. El hayamma hamutsaim, To the expanding sea, this is referring to the Great Sea, which we would call the Mediterranean. Now the Gebarah says, Why do they call the Mediterranean the expanding sea? It's referring to the two times that it overflowed its banks. One time in the generation of Enosh, the generation worshipped Avodah Zarah. And then yet another time in the generation of Palaga, that also the people worshipped so both those generations, the Mediterranean overflowed and flooded those generations. It wasn't a flood like in the times of Noah. It was more of a local uh, situation that just flooded out those 
communities that were worshipping Tavod Azara. The Gemara elaborates. Rabbi Lazar b'Shem Rabbi Harina. Barishona, the first time, meaning during the times of Enosh, Yatsa'ad Kalabria. The water overflowed until it reached Kalabria. So he explains that's a region in the extreme southeastern part of the Italian peninsula on the heel of the boot of Italy. Okay, that was where it went, it's Calabria. And in the time of Dora Palaga, it actually reached and overflowed to the Barbary coast, which is on the northern coast of Africa, extending from west of Egypt to the Atlantic Ocean. So he explains over here that initially Africa and Europe were one landmass. They were attached. But as retribution for the sins of the generation of Enosh, civilization was separated by the Atlantic Ocean, which expanded eastward, at first reaching Calabria and later the Barbary Coast. So according to this opinion, they're learning that the Great Sea was not the Mediterranean. They're learning it was actually Oceanus, which is the Atlantic Ocean. So we have different opinions over here. What does it mean in the Gemara when it says, uh, uh, the Yama Hamutsaim, where it says Zehayam, Hagadol. In any event, that's uh, the uh, borders, uh, how the sea overflowed uh, actually twice. Comes Gibran says, Rabbi Acha Beshem Rabbi Hanina. Uh, different view. The first time the sea overflowed, it was until it reached the Barbary coast. And the second time it overflowed until it reached Akko and Yafo, because the Pasuk says, Ad po tabo velotosif. Until here you shall reach and no further. So they're learning like from the Pasuk that says, Ad po, as if it says, Ad akko tabo. That you'll go until Akko, velotosif, and not go further. Ufo yashit pigon galecha. Ufo, they're learning as if it says, Ad Yafo. And until Yafo, ashit gon galecha, your uh, waves will be flaunted, which means the uh, sea expanded all the way until. Ako ad Yafo. So the Gemara says, Niha Yamaraba Yamadimilha. Says, I understand that you want to tell me that this water, the spring of water, is going to reach the Great Sea and the Dead Sea. Why? In order to make the waters sweet. It seems those waters are salty. So the waters of the Beta Mikdash are going to sweeten these waters. However, Yamaditmeria, Yamadi Samku those waters are sweet already. So why would these waters have to uh, uh, go into those waters? They're sweet already. Kemara says, In order to increase their fish, it seems that there will be more species of fish in these sweet waters now. Literally, to its species will be their fish, meaning, There's going to be a multitude of new species of fish in those waters as a result of the new influx of waters. And the Gemara shows us that uh, there are certain areas that have many fish. Tani, This is one time I went to Sidon. And they brought for me in a, one plate over 300 fish, different species. So therefore you see that there are places in the world that do have many species. So they're saying these waters are going to be similar to that. So the Gemara now says, V'nirpu hamayim besotav ugba'av velo yirafe'u lemelach nitanu. Now, regarding these waters, it says, and the waters will become sweetened. Its swamps and its pools, and they will not become sweetened. They will be set aside for salt. So, have you make up your mind, the Pasuk? Are these waters going to sweeten, or are they not going to sweeten? In the beginning of the Pasuk, it says they're going to sweeten the other waters. And then the end of the Pasuk says, they're not going to sweeten. The Kabbalah says, no, Ketiv. So, the Kabbalah asks the question, Ketiv in in the same pasuk you say that the waters are not going to sweeten, will not become sweetened. 
Kemara says, Makom hu ushmo velo yirafehu. The waters are definitely going to become sweetened. But there's a certain place that the name of the place is called lo yirafehu. That's the name of the place. And in that place, the waters are not going to become sweetened because you're going to need a certain place to get your salt from. If all the waters in the region become sweet, where are you going to get the sea salt? So therefore it says, in the place that's called velo yirafehu, it's going to remain salty. So if it's not a contradiction, comes Gibran says, Ketiv. It says, Ve'al anachal ya'aleh al-sifato mizeh umizeh, kol etz ma'achal lo yibol alehu, ve'lo yitom periho, la'chodashav yibakir. She's along the stream. Uh, they will rise on its bank, on the side, that all, and that all types of food trees, its leaf will not wither, nor will its fruit give out by its mouth. It will yield a new crop. Uh, and it says it will yield a new crop by its months. So now the Gibraltar is going to discuss that the beracha of this water is going to cause the crop to uh, ripen much quicker than normally. Tanu, we learned to the Braita. Amar Biyuda. The Biyuda said, Lefi Normally, it takes wheat to grow six months. And it takes a tree to produce fruit twelve months. But in the future, that the wheat is going to become ripened and grow in a single month. So you see that's going to be uh, one-sixth of its time. And for that matter, the same ratio is going to be to the fruit trees. That instead of once every 12 months, it's going to produce once every 2 months. Maita'ama, where do they learn this from? From the pasuk that we just read. Lachodashav yibakir. Lachodashav is plural. Meaning it will produce new fruits, lachodashav, every 2 months. And that's as a result of these special waters that are emanating from the Beit HaMikdash. They're going to cause the fruit to ripen and grow much faster. A different view. Normally the wheat grows in six months. Right? And the trees grow, produce fruit every 12 months. That it's only going to take 15 days for the wheat to grow. And for that matter, it's only going to take the trees to produce for one month. Because we have a precedent in the time of the Prophet Yoel, there was a famine. And it says in the Pasuk that it didn't rain until Nisan, and and the Omer was brought on time. Now the Omer is brought on the 16th of Nisan. That means the first rain came on the 1st of Nisan, and already they were able to cut the Omer by the 16th of Nisan. That means it must have grown in 15 days. Days. So you see, just like in the times of Yoel, there was a miracle that wheat grew in 15 days, that's going to happen as well. What's the proof that it only grew in 15 days? The children of Sion were happy uh, in their God, they rejoiced. Because God gave them the rain, it's like Yore, that's the first rains. Both rains, the strong rains and the soft rains of Yoreo Malkosh, Barishon, in the first month. And what does it say after that? That they were able to cut the Omer. So therefore we see that it grew in a miraculous time of only 15 days. Comes the Gibran says now, Uma Mikayim Rabbi Yoseh, Lachadwashad Yibakir. Yeah, but what does he mean? We just learned the Pasuk that says, Lachadwashad Yibakir, Lachadwashad is plural. That Lachadwashad is going to take two months for fruit to produce. Where he says, it's going to only produce every month, it's going to produce. How does he learn the plurality of the Pesuk? Lachodashav, which is mashma every two months. So the Gebra says, Bechol chodesh, bechodesh Lachodashav means, not in two months, but every month. Month after month, they are going to produce a new crop. And the Pesuk continues, The leaves of the tree are going to be uh, for healing. Rabbi Hanan Amar, which means the person who sucks the leaves, 
will be considered to him as food. Tarpeh, the pasus va'alil trufa, they are learning it as if it was written with a tit, which is terif. Terif is food. Va'alil trufa. The actual leaves themselves will be like sustaining. They'll be like mazon. We just have to suck on the leaves themselves, and they'll give a person a sustenance. Utraf mezona, right? And the uh, root will also be uh, for sustenance. Seems if a person sucks the root of the uh, of the uh, tree, he'll also uh, give him like a sustenance of food. Correct. Comes Gemara and says, Rabu Shmuel, Rabu Shmuel say, Had Amar lehatir peshil ma'alan. One said that when you eat the leaf, it'll have the power to open up the upper mouth, which means the leaves will restore the appetite of those that had lost the desire to eat. Which means you're going to just suck on the leaves and it'll open up your appetite. Or, like we're going to learn, it's going to have the ability to cure the mute. Meaning, peshel ma'la. Ve'hadamalatir peshel matan. Or some say it's going to have the ability to open up the lower mouth, which means the bowels. That if a person is uh, constipated, so able to go to the bathroom just by sucking on these leaves. Alternatively, like we're going to see, it refers to the womb of a lady, the lower mouth, that ladies that were not able to conceive, they'll just suck on these uh, special leaves, and they'll automatically be able to conceive. And the Gemara says, Rabbi Haninav, Rabbi Yoshua ben Nevi, Had Amar lehatir pe'akarot, one said that the leaves have the power to open the mouths of the barren ones, that's the peshel mata, the Had Amar lehatir pe'ilimim, and some say that they have the ability to open up the mouths of the mutes. So, obviously over here, we have a mahloket. The first set of tana'im that we mentioned on this subject, uh, obviously hold that the power of these leaves are not supernatural. They're either a, a laxative or they give a person an appetite. Whereas, um, according to these opinions over here, we see uh, they actually have miraculous powers to them, that they also have the ability to cure mute people and also uh, cause ladies to uh, conceive. Comes the Gemaran continues. At When Nebuchadnezzar entered and came to Erish Israel, he came and stationed himself on the outskirts of a place called Antioch, which uh, they explained that would be uh, southern Turkey, the present uh, day. So the great Sanhedrin came out to greet Nebuchadnezzar. The Amra, no, the Sanhedrin asked him, Has the time of the Beit HaMikdash come to be destroyed? Meaning, did you come to destroy the Beit HaMikdash? The one that I appointed to be the king over you, I want you to hand him over to me. And I will go. So they went to Yehoyachin, Melchi Yehuda. Again, uh, he was one of the uh, last kings uh, to rule uh, in Yehuda. Right? He was called Yehoyachin, also known as Yehonya. He was the nephew of Tzedkiah HaMelech, the son of uh, Yehoiakim. In any event, uh, the rabbis of the Sanhedrin went to Yehoiakim and they told him, Nebuchadnezzar ba'ilach, Nebuchadnezzar wants you. Kevan when he heard this, Natal maftichot she bet he took the keys of the bet ha-mikdash with him, ala legago shel he went to the roof of the hechal, amal lefanav, and he said in front of Borei Olam, Rebono shel Olam, Master of the Universe, In the past, we were faithful to you. 
therefore you entrusted the keys of the Mecca Mekdash with us. But now it seems that we're not faithful anymore. Your keys are hereby returned to you. Which means he threw the keys back up. We have a on this. Some say he threw them up and they have not come down. Which means as if God agreed to what he was saying. That you know, it's time to give back the keys, and if the keys never landed. One rabbi says, That the likeness of a hand actually emerged from heaven, and actually took back the keys. As if to say that the Jewish people do not deserve to serve in the Bet HaMikdash anymore. Once all the noblemen of Yehuda saw that God's uh, uh, displeasure with the Jewish people and their service in the Beit HaMikdash So they uh, went up to the rooftops and they jumped off and died committed suicide That's what is written That's what is Jesus, the prophet says, a prophecy about the valley of vision, Yerushalayim. What has happened to you now that you have all ascended to the rooftops? You have been full of commotion, a tumultuous city, an exuberant town. Your slain are not victims of the sword, nor casualties of war. The valley of vision is referring to Yerushalayim, since all, all eyes used to be on Yerushalayim, that's why it's called the valley of vision. Which means, the Pasuk is saying that the noble ones, they were not slain in battle or war, but they died by ascending to the roofs and uh, committing suicide. The Gemara continues, Halakha Gimal Mishnah Yud Gimal Shulchanot Hayu B'Mikdash There were 13 tables in the Beta Mikdash. Chet Shel Shayish There were 8 marble tables Bebet HaMitbachayim In the slaughtering house. What do they do on these eight tables? Shalehen madihin et On those tables, they would clean the insides of the animals that were slaughtered. Ubet kevish. Two on the west side of the ramp that goes up to the mizbeach. One was a marble table, and one was made out of silver. On the marble table, they put the bones of the animal and the meat that is going to eventually be placed on the mizbeach itself. And on the silver table, they would put all the vessels that were used in order to bring the korban. And two more tables were in the ulam, that was in the antechamber of the Beit HaMikdash, on the inside, at the entrance. One was marble, and one was made out of gold. On the marble, Now every Shabbat, they would, they would change the Shulchan that was in the Kodesh. There was a Shulchan. On it there were 12 loaves of bread. Those breads were called Lechem Apanim. They would change the table every Shabbat by putting new bread on it and taking off the old bread. Then the Kohanim would divide the old bread and eat it amongst them. So now it says when they would bring the new bread into the Beit HaMikdash, it says they would place the Lechem Apanim on the um, uh, marble table as you entered into the Beit HaMikdash. Ba'al shil zahav Now the old bread that they took off they would place it on the gold table on the way out. Now, the reason why they had to leave it on the gold table for a while is because you can't eat it until the Kohanim take what's called the Levona, <coughs> which is the frankincense, which was actually on the, shulchan, one of the, on the Shulchan itself, with the, bread. with the breads, and they would have to bring that on the Mizbeach. <coughs> Only after the Levona was brought on the Mizbeach, now the 12 loaves, <coughs> old loaves, are permissible to eat. So the process was like this. They went to the actual shulchan. <laughs> they took off the old loaves. They brought it out right. 
to the entrance, they put it on the gold table, they let it sit there until the Levona was brought. Now again, when they would enter the new loaves into the Beit HaMikdash, they would place them originally on the marble table. Now what's the reason why the old bread specifically is on the gold table? So it says, because the law is that when a thing comes to the things of Kiddushah, you can only go up in Kiddushah and you can't go down. Now the table that they were sitting on all week was a gold table. So when you take it off the gold table, you have to put it on a gold table. You can't take it from a gold table and put it on a marble table. You can't bring it down. The 13th table was actually the table of the Lechavapanim. That was inside the Hazarab, the Beit HaMikdash, or the Hechal of the Beit HaMikdash, where they actually had the Lechem Hapanim themselves. So this is the 13 tables that were in the Beit HaMikdash proper. Now let's read the Taklin Hatim. Taklin Hatim is tough in the Mishnah. Sha'alehen madihin takarabayim. Right, the eight tables that were in the butcher house, slaughtering house, was the tables that were used for cleaning the insides of the animals. Lashot Rabbeinu HaGaon v'chen apshat v'nitua hayasham. Um, they also used to cut the meat on them. Ela shelezim meshemesh yoter mekev ashu madichin alavu menach ala ad hakraba. They would also leave it on the tables until they were about to bring them to the mizbeach. Al shel shayish achad nitua mesadrim shem evarim ad shalom akwanim. And by the mizbeach on the west side of the mizbeach, you had a table of marble. After they would cut the pieces up in their proper pieces, they would put it on the Table until they were ready to bring it up the ramp to the Mizbeah. All the Klisharet was taken out every day, so they would leave it on the silver table next to the Mizbeah. Now, going into the Beit HaMikdash, also Ma'alim Bakodesh. The new loaves were originally placed on marble and then eventually upgraded to the gold, gold. gold table that was in the uh, Beta Mikdash. Now the Gemara analyzes. Tani, we learned Al Shel Kesef. Al Mishnah said that um, the new breads are placed on the uh, marble table. However, in the Braita we have a different Girsa, a different Shita, I should say. The shitav de Blaita is that the new breads were actually placed on kesef, were placed on a silver table. It still works with Malim Bakodesh, because still it went from silver to gold. So it comes out we have a mahloket between the Mishnah and the Blaita. The new bread the for the new week, was it put on a marble table originally, or was it put on a silver table? The Blaita is going with the shitav that says it was a silver table. So the Gemara says... When we skip the parentheses, Rabbi Yosef b'shem Rabbi Shmuel bar Rav Yitzchak Rav Hananya matayba b'shem Rabbi Yohanan let kanchel kesef. He says no, the breads were not placed on kesef on silver. Why? Mepene sheu martiyah because the silver conducts heat. The bread was hot when you brought it in, and therefore what's going to happen? You're going to put the hot bread. It's going to be put on the silver table. The silver is going to get hot. And that's going to cause the bread to spoil faster. But you place it on marble, so that would stop spoilage. So comes the uh, Gemara and says, Lo chen tani ehad nisim mikdash which means the Gemara is asking a question. We know one of the miracles in the Beit Hamikdash was that the Belecham Apanim would stay hot and fresh. All hot. Week. So if it's going to stay hot and fresh all week, so what are we worried about spoiling? What are you worried about putting it on the silver table and it's going to spoil? And how do we know that it stayed hot all week? That when you took the Lechem off, it was like when you placed it. Just like when you placed it, it was hot. So too when you took it off it was hot. So what are you worried about? Putting it on a silver table that it's going to cause it to spoil. So the Gemara says, You don't rely on miracles. Which means you still have to act in the normal way and uh, that should happen. The Gemara continues, They asked the question in front of Rabbi Let's say they did not have for some reason uh, they didn't have a fresh batch of bread for the new coming week. They only had last week's bread. 
What's the question? Are you allowed to leave last week's bread on the table? Now the question is really like this. Because by Sunday morning, once already it waits overnight, it becomes pasul. Because the lehma panim has to be eaten by Motzei Shabbat. The next morning already it becomes notar. So it's pasul. So this question really is, are you allowed to keep lehem pasul on the table? Because it does say that there should always be bread on the table, tamid. Or do we say, no, when we say lehem on the table, it means lehem kasher. But if it's pasul, no. So that's the question. Is it better to keep lehem pasul on the table or not? So the Gebrahs, Amalon, Ketiv, and Atatala, Shuchan, Lehem, Panim, Lefanai, Tamid. It says you have to put bread on the table always. Lehem, Panim, Afilu, Pasul. The Gebrahs says, even if it's Pasul, it's better than nothing, keep it on the table. So that's that halakha. The Gebrahs now says, Asara Shulchanot, Asa Shilomo. Shlomo Melech, when he built the first Beit HaMikdash, he made ten different tables. Dikhtiv. Bayara Shulchanot, Asara. He made ten tables. Vayanach b'hechal hamisha miyamin b'hamisha misimol. In the echal, he put five to the right and five to the left. Now, in temar, if you're going to say hamisha b'darom v'hamisha b'safon, now what does it mean right left? So if you're going to tell me he put five on the north wall and five on the south wall, how could that be? V'alo ena shulchan kasher ela b'safon. We know that the table can only be on the north side. So you can't tell me that he put five against the north wall and five against the uh, the south, because that's, or, or let's say, even better, let's say that he lined them up north-south, the Shulchanot. Let's say he lined them across. Mm-hmm. Okay? So you're going to have five tables coming from the north wall, and then you're going to have, uh, at the midpoint, five tables going to the south, so the five tables that are closer to the south are going to be considered pasul. You know, the five to the north, uh, the first five tables are still considered on the north side. So therefore the Gemara says, Meaning, you had Moshe's table in the middle, uh, on, on the north side, and then five on one side, and five on the other side, but all on the north side going east-west right. meaning you place the tables east-west so it's all on the right side meaning the north side it's just uh, Moshe's table in the middle and the Gemara says Afapichen lo haya misadet ela b'shil Moshe bilvad but the, 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 the table that they used to put the lechem apanim was only Moshe's so the other ten were really decorative but still the Hidush of the Gemara is they had to be on the right side of course. which means even though you didn't use them but they still had a deal of a shulchan that had to be on the North side. The table that the Lehem Apanim was on, which is Moshe's table. Rabbi Yosef argues. And he says, No, they used to put the Lehem Apanim on all the tables. Now, the way that she understands this is in Minachot, not that they put on all the tables simultaneously, but they would rotate the tables. Now, one week they would put it on uh, Moshe's table, the other week they would put it on a different table. So eventually all, right, so eventually all ten tables got used for the Lechem So that's a fantastic machloket. Did they use only one table in the Beit HaMikdash, or did they use all of them through alternating? Shnei Amar, how did you know they used all the tables? Because it says, et shulchanot, the tables va'alehem Lechem apanim, And on them, implying that more than one table was used. The, um... The Taklin Hatin says that this sugya incidentally is in Masikat Benachot on Sadiqet Amud Bet and Sadiqet Amud Aleph, and that's the uh, conclusion of this Gemara.